I was thinking yesterday as I was uh, sending out our email that we have accomplished half of our year, finished half of our year. So today is July 1st, which means six months of 2018 have come and gone. And so unlike you, I have not yet reached all my New Year's resolutions and all my goals and everything I set out to do, which means for the next six months, I'm going to try really hard to get back on task and do what I, what I hope to do this year. And one of the things that we hope to do this year as a church was to be more missional. Uh, you probably saw behind me that one of our values is uh, missional living. And that simply means that we are intentional with our time, we're intentional with our daily rhythms, where we eat, how we celebrate, how we recreate. And so as I was thinking, July 1st is not necessarily bad news, it's actually good news. Why? Because in a couple of days we have Independence Day. So perfect opportunity for you to grill grill some hot dogs, get some fireworks, invite your neighbors over and just get to know them, get to know their names, hear their stories, how they ended up at the neighborhood. And so it's just a perfect time for you to engage in missional living. It's very simple. It doesn't have to be complicated. And praying toward the opportunity to share the gospel at some point. Now, um, I have a couple of nerdy facts for you this morning. So Independence Day, does anybody know uh, when that was actually signed? 1776. Yes. U.S. history, right? So um, 242 years ago, uh, we decided as a people that we would become independent from Great Britain, right? And so we signed a Declaration of Independence. And within that, we wrote, we hold these truths to be self-evident. We know this, right? That all men are created equal. And we all have the right to pursue life, liberty, and happiness. And it's interesting that you and I sit here 242 years later, right? None of us were there 242 years ago. I imagine none of us were there. That would be incredible if you were there. But here we are 242 years later, and we're enjoying liberty and life and the pursuit of happiness in a country, not because of anything we did, not because we were there 242 years ago and signed uh, this Declaration of Independence, but because it was graciously passed on to us today. And today's story, we find something very similar. We find a woman who is caught in sin, in very heinous sin. She is caught with another man that is not her husband. And she is given a gift, not because she's earned it, not because she worked for it, but because it's a gift of grace from Jesus Christ. Now, I titled today's sermon, Red-Handed Grace. And it's kind of interesting when we think of the kind of grace this woman receives today because it is the grace that is given to somebody who is found red-handed. So your second uh, kind of nerdy fact of the day is the term red-handed came from Scotland back in the 1500s. And it was a term used, at, rightfully so, for people who were found at a crime scene with blood still on their hands. There's no doubt about it. This person had committed the murder. Right? And so their hands were literally red, and the term comes red-handed. And uh, now we use it more lightly today, right? So maybe you're dieting with your spouse, and uh, you're in the kitchen, and you're getting ready to get a cookie. And your spouse walks in, and you say, uh, I was going for the water, right? You're trying to be more healthier for the fruit. Uh, and we're caught red-handed. But the reality is that um, the term has very many different meanings. And what I want us to see today is just the severity and gravity of what really being red-handed means. Uh, a few months ago, I was pulled over. Uh, yes, pastors get pulled over as well. Um, I was on my way to a Houston church planning uh, meeting, so on my way to something very godly, and a, cut, a car cut me off. And, 
And uh, so I swerved out of the lane, and when I get into my right lane, there's a police officer that had somebody pulled over. So I passed the police officer probably going about 40 miles an hour. So in this city, we cannot pass emergency vehicles, I think, going beyond 20 or 25 miles an hour. So I was clearly going fast. Uh, officer got freaked out, told me to get to the side. So I get to the side, and I'm thinking, oh, goodness, this is not going to be good. So he comes up to the window, and he says, you know why I pulled you over? I said, yes, sir. I, I, uh, look, I'm not trying to justify myself, but I was cut off. I had to maneuver quickly. I made the quickest decision I could make to, to keep as many of us safe as possible. And, uh, and I know I passed you going off uh, pretty fast. And he said, yes, not only that, you know what else you did? I said, well, I think I'm pretty sure I crossed a uh, white solid line, which you can't cross in a white solid line. He goes, you know what else you did? And I said, I, I don't. And I think he thought I was on my cell phone, but I wasn't. So I said, I, I don't know. He goes, well, uh, your backlights are, are not up to par. And, and he goes, and there's, there's probably a couple other things I can find. Give me your license and registration. So he went back and came back, and I'm praying for grace. Lord, let him not give me a ticket. I cannot afford a ticket right now. So he comes back, and he tells me, hey, uh, so I could give you three tickets today, the biggest one being you pass an emergency vehicle going at high speeds. He goes, that's an $800 ticket alone. He goes, but I'm not going to do that to you today. I'm going to give you a ticket for your taillights. And I thought, really, out of all this big ordeal you just made, you can give me a ticket for my taillight. And he goes, just clean them up, go to court, and they'll dismiss the case. So I have court on Tuesday, and so I'll be praying that the case gets dismissed. <laughs> um, but... The reality is, since uh, the end of March until Tuesday, I am red-handed. I'm showing up to court basically guilty, right? The officer said, and he didn't write me up for everything else, but he said, your taillights are not up to code. So I'm showing up to the judge and saying, hey, uh, I cleaned them up. I, maybe I disagree. The law says it's black and white. It doesn't matter the circumstance, but I'm coming to you red-handed. I'm guilty until the judge says, case dismissed, you're not guilty. And maybe some of us here are red-handed as well. Maybe you've cheated as, on your diet. Maybe it's something as simple as that. Or maybe you've cheated on your spouse, and it's as serious as that. Maybe you've cheated at work to get ahead. Maybe you've cheated on your taxes. Maybe you've done things you shouldn't have done. And it started with something very small, something you said, oh, this is this so easy, so small, it's not a big deal. But over time, it's become something very big, something incredibly big. It's to the point where you are red-handed. In your hands, you have full of sin, figuratively speaking, and you are probably at your lowest point you've ever been at or you've ever seen yourself at. And what we find in today's text is what happens when our lowest of lows meets Jesus' love. When our lowest of lows comes before the creator and king of the world, and what we will see is that we find in Jesus, in our lowest of lows, his greatest gift of grace. And that is a beautiful thing that you and I get to embrace today. Now, this grace is not just, oh, case dismissed, you're forgiven. This grace is so much bigger than just forgiveness. And that's what we will explore today is, what does this grace mean? Red-handed grace is when you are able to come before the Lord and you see your sin and you see how low you are. And you are welcomed and covered in his grace. And that is what changes your life. And today we will see a woman that experiences that. And this is the reality is that everybody in today's story that we will read about has one thing in common with all of us in this room. Is that we're all red-handed. 
that we all have sin, that we all have fallen short of the glory of God because the standard is so high. We sang today of God's holiness, of his greatness, of his worth. There's only but one person that is worthy of our worship and our praise, and that is Jesus because he is holy. He is the son of God. And in his great love, he would stoop down to us and he would save us and he would bring us to himself. And so this is the good news of the gospel is that there is hope amidst our great lows and our red hands, there is grace. And today we will see how they are juxtaposed and how they function together. Now, today's text is also particularly interesting. If you have your Bible, open it to John 8. And one of the things you will see in brackets is uh, the earliest manuscripts do not include these 12 verses, right? So, um, yes, Thank you, Lance, for giving me these texts that are always kind of difficult, right? So I've been reading. I thought, okay, what, is, what, is, what do I want to highlight today? And, and so first let me just say this. I want to invite you, and I, I literally mean this. I'll be in the back um, to talk about this, to talk about the canon, to talk about the authority and the inerrancy of the Bible, meaning it has no errors, right? So how can we have 12 verses that your Bible literally says these may not have been in the original manuscript, so why are they in the Bible? Well, let me just take one quick minute, and this is your final history lesson, I promise. Um, so over time, we had the original manuscripts 2,000 years ago, the original letters that were written to the churches, the original Gospels, right? But back then, there wasn't a copier, there wasn't a printing press, and so they did what all of our old school parents and grandparents, and maybe some of us even still got to do, it was handwritten, right? So they copied this. And over time, these were called transmissions. So they were transmitted over and over and over again. And we have plenty of these transmissions to accurately say, okay, the original ones actually had this in their content. So think about it this way. If, we, if I gave you 100 sheets of a letter, and 95 of them have the same exact thing, it's fairly certain that the original one was exactly the same as those 95. And the other five maybe have smaller nuances here and there that are different, but they don't necessarily contradict what the letter's trying to say. And that's what we find in today's text, is that this wasn't really found until the 5th century, this, these 12 verses. And, uh, but one of the reasons that I, I think this was included is because though it wasn't the original manuscript, there's really no reason to believe this story may not have happened. And there's really nothing that says it's contradictory to the doctrine of the things we believe about Christ. In fact, today's text, maybe we don't take them as authoritative as in the uh, initial um, writings, but what we do see is that they point to Christ. And so they are continuous in doctrine and orthodoxy and the things that we believe about Jesus and the things that John teaches about Jesus. And so that's why as we explore today's text, keep that in mind that, hey, this was not, probably not in the original manuscripts, but in God's sovereign, sovereignty, it's in the Bible. It's in John. And we're working through John. So here we are today, and we're going to explore what this point points out to us about Jesus. And that's this red-handed grace that we get to find in him. So let me just define grace for you uh, quickly. Free and unmerited favor of God as manifested in the salvation of sinners and bestowed by blessings. And so the first thing that I think we see in this text is that Jesus gives us grace through truth. 
Okay, let me say that again, is that Jesus gives us grace through truth. Now let's read verses 53 to 2. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. So last week we saw Jesus get up and say, if you're thirsty, come to me. And he's in the middle of the temple at the Feast of Booths. And at the end of chapter 7, there's division. The Pharisees come up and say, who is this man? Why is he talking with so much authority? They're trying to find ways to charge him. And our friend Nick, Nicodemus, stands up for his for Jesus and basically says, hey, even our law requires a fair trial. Like, we can't just take him to jail. So today we're going to see the Pharisees and scribes follow up with that. But we see this division between people that want to know Jesus, hear about Jesus, hear his words, and then the people that are trying to get Jesus. So they go home and pay attention to the details. Early in the morning, Jesus came to the temple. So first thing in the morning, Jesus wakes up, and in his mind, he's thinking, it's time for me to go teach again. Right? He valued the word so much that he went back to the temple to the place where there was division to teach again. And I have to ask myself, is this the kind of value that you and I place on the word of God? That we would wake up early in the morning, that we would wake up driven and excited about the truths in scripture that we get to see, understand, believe, and live out. And look at what happens. It says, all the people came to him. His words were so powerful so full of something different they hadn't experienced before that people gravitated to him. And I have to wonder that, are we people like that? Are we people that those around us, our neighbors, our networks, our friends, gravitate to us not because we are funny or because we have a good personality or because we have a pool in our house, but because we are full of the words of Jesus in our life. And these words are life-given. These are transformative words. These are the words that have taken a sinner like me, a broken man like me, and have brought me to the family of God. And has, he's begun this beautiful healing process in my life and has me here now teaching about his word. And it's not because of my merits, because somebody shared the gospel with me, shared the good news of Jesus with me, shared his words, and they were enough to draw me to him. And I have to challenge us to be people that would rise early excited about the truths in this word because they are power. They are powerful and they change our lives and they are the words that this world desperately needs to hear from us. And pay attention to what Jesus does. Posture is important in this message. And he says, he sat down and taught them. Jesus came and instead of conquering being king of kings, overthrowing the government, overthrowing everybody there and saying, I'm king, I'm crowned king. What he does is he takes the words, king of kings, lord of lords, God from heaven, and what does he do? He sits down and teaches them. Who are you sitting down with these days? Who are you teaching these days? AKA, this is discipleship. This is what we talk about. It's not just randomly coming to church, hearing a good message, feeling good about ourselves, and walking out unchanged. It's about really letting these words resonate and change us to the point that we have people in our lives. Maybe it's our spouse, maybe it's our kids, maybe it's our neighbors, maybe it's our coworkers that we're sitting down. And it starts as simple as hey, tell me about yourself, tell me your story. Where are you from? I was at Micro Center on Friday trying to buy a router, and some guy that's in IT started explaining things to me that I did not understand. And I said, all right, well, I got to go. And then I felt, no, I just need to ask him about his life. Hey, man, so tell me about your life. You from Houston? Yeah, I'm from Houston. I lived here, moved around, been there, been here. 
have uh, a significant other for 13 years. And, and we got into about a 45-minute conversation, and I got his number, exchanged numbers with him, and I'm going to follow up a copy with him. Unexpected place, but because I was attuned to what the Spirit was telling me to do. Now, I don't know what may come of that, but my prayer is that I definitely know he does not know God, and that at some point I'd get to share the gospel with him. And something gravitated us together. It's the Spirit moving. It's not me in any way. It's just the Spirit, right place, right time, and us being attentive to what the Spirit is doing. Jesus gives us grace through truth. Not only that, Jesus gives us grace by exposing us. Now, can you imagine what would happen if right now I brought you up here to the front and I showed everybody in the room your deepest sin? What would you feel if I brought you up here and your worst mistake, the worst decision you ever made, I just put it on the screen and I said, hey, this is what he has done. This is what she has done. How would you feel? There would be so much shame and so much guilt associated with that. You would probably want to run out of here. If we were to put my worst sins up on the screen right now, I would want to go hide and never face any of you guys again, right? That's my humanity and that's my flesh because there's all this brokenness inside of me that I, I don't like to show or reveal. And yet, Jesus gives us grace by exposing that. Because what we will see is that when our sin and our failures and our lowest of lows are exposed, His grace is abundant. His grace is abundant to cover and to change that. And so let's read verse 3 through 6. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they may have something to charge, some charge to bring against him. So change the scene, right? Jesus is teaching his disciples. Enter the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious of the time. And yesterday they weren't able to get him, so today they're like, All right, big man, we're going to figure out a way to get you today. We have a trick question. So this woman was caught in adultery. Now, there's probably a question many of us are asking here is, where was the man? Good question, right? These Pharisees, the scribes, are very tactical, very strategic. How did they even know this had just happened? Well, either way, maybe it was programmed, it was designed, but they brought her. The man's not there. And they point to what? The law of Moses, right? And so they asked Jesus a trick question. And the reason it's a trick question is because, hey, so the law tells us the stoner, what do you say we should do? If Jesus says, yes, go ahead and stone her and kill her, all of a sudden Jesus has put her life at stake and he's put his reputation of being friend of sinners at stake. He's no longer the friend of sinners. Now he is the law-abiding Jesus of the Old Testament. And guess what? If you wanted a charge to bring against Jesus, um, yeah, just tell everybody else to kill this person, right? Because they were under Roman jurisdiction. So now there's a reason to actually arrest him. Because he has given authority to people to stone someone to death. Now, on the flip side, if he says, no, don't kill her. It's all right. Well, what about the law of Moses? If you say you are Jesus, if you say you are God, and you know the law that Yahweh, God the Father, gave to us in the Old Testament, then who are you to break that law, right? And this is something I want you to to know today, is that Jesus is not scared of your questions, all right? Sometimes... We're, we're trying to figure some reasons out. Why, Lord? Why is this happening in my life? Why now? Why am I going through this? Why am I so broken? Why was I molested? Why was I abused? Why, why are these trials happening? And we, and we get angry with God and we blame God. He is not put off by that. In fact, he welcomes that. 
And what we're going to see in a second is that he'll answer us, maybe not the way we expect him to answer, but the way we need him to answer. So the Pharisees, with their tricky questions, come to him, and he says something very unexpected and does something very unexpected. Now, he kneels down, right, and he begins to write on the ground. Now, we were joking earlier um, with the meeting that, you know, if Jesus did everything perfect, that must have been the best line on the sand you've ever seen in your life, right? It was just perfect. Jesus' drawings were perfect. Now, we don't know what he wrote, um, but it's interesting that I do see a little bit of a parallel. I wouldn't read too much into this, but back in the Old Testament, Exodus 31, when God gives Moses the Ten Commandments, it says that he wrote on the tablet with his finger. He gave Moses the law with his finger. Now, this context is very important because what happens when Moses gets the Ten Commandments? He was actually given the Ten Commandments twice. Did you know that? Because he's up on the mountain, and God gives him the Ten Commandments for his people out of grace and out of love. And then he tells Moses, hey, by the way, the people are down there partying, doing some very immoral stuff, and I am about to come down on them. And what Moses does is he intercedes for the people. He says, Lord, don't. Let me deal with them. Let me go down and talk to them. Please don't bring your wrath upon them. And he goes down, and he finds a big mess, a big mess of brokenness in the people of Israel. And what he ends up, do- what he ends up doing is breaking the tablets. So God has to give him the tablets again. Now, isn't it interesting that when the Pharisees and the scribes would quote the law of Moses, that if we really were to go back and look at the law of Moses when it was given, what we find is intercession for an immoral group of people that do not deserve it. And what we find is God withholding his wrath from them. And we're going to read that in a second, but that's what we find the first time we encounter the law of Moses. And here the Pharisees are very different in posture and motive and drive. They're trying to find a reason to get Jesus. They're not trying to find grace and mercy and love. They're trying to find a way to get Jesus. So let's continue to read verses 7 through 9. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. They place her private sin public to condemn her, and Jesus calls out their private sin so that they may walk away condemned. This is the interesting thing about Jesus' answer, is that he tells them, let him who is without sin, a.k.a. holy, a.k.a. perfect, meaning there is nothing in you you've ever done that's wrong, be the first one to condemn her, to throw a stone at her. And the reality is, he says, be the first to throw us on her. None of them could be first. Only Jesus could be first. Only Jesus in this story and all of stories perfect. He is the only one that is capable and able to judge and condemn perfectly. And yet he doesn't. And the people that are coming in to judge, does that mean that we have to have perfect judges? Otherwise the system's broken? That's not what this is talking about. But he's talking about if you're going to sit here and condemn, then where is your posture? Why are you doing this? Where is this coming out of? Because when Jesus calls out our sin, it's very different than when we call each other on our sin. And so it's about holiness, which none of us can attain outside of Jesus. And so he does something again. He looks at them, says, hey, um, whoever's without sin, cast the first stone at her. He kneels down and he starts to write again, right? We don't know what he wrote, but I do want you to turn with me to Exodus 34. So I want to show you something that I think ties directly into this text. 
If you've heard me preach before, you know that this is probably one of my favorite chapters, if not my favorite chapter of the Old Testament, with my two favorite verses in here. Um, And I'll show you why in a second. The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by the morning, hmm, and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you, and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. God is asking him for a moment with Moses. He's about to give him something very special. And, there, and what I begin to see here is intimacy, is proximity, is relationship. And it's something that maybe we don't often see associated with the law, and yet it is here. Even from the Old Testament, there was relationship with God. Let's keep reading. So Moses cut two tablets of stone, like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up to Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him, to, had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended into the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Now this is where it just gets good, guys. Verse 6, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh. When you see the, the, the word Lord capitalized, it's the word for Yahweh. Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in Hesed and Emmet. Hesed is steadfast love. Emmet is faithfulness. And when they are placed together, they highlight how strong and how true this characteristic is of the person it is talking about. This is true of our God, even from the Old Testament. He is full of steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And so what we do see is a just God, is a God that is loving and forgiving and gracious and merciful, full of steadfast love for us, but that does not excuse sin. And we're going to land there today. Just because God forgives our sin doesn't mean the sin is excused. In fact, that's the reason Jesus had to come to earth. There had to be a payment for that sin, for our guilty red hands. And so this points us to the character of Jesus in the future, right? This is from the Old Testament. And yet, John will tell us the same thing about Jesus, that he is full of truth and he is full of love. And let's finish here, verses 8 and 9. And Moses quickly bowed his head to the earth and worshiped. And he said, if I now have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. That's our right posture when we come before grace. It's not, hey, jail out a free card, we're good to go. No, it's, oh my Lord, you could have destroyed me. I could have been put to death. This woman's reality was, at best case scenario, she was left alive and her reputation was marked for the rest of her life as the adulterous woman that was taken before everybody. And that's it. That's who she's going to be known by or as. Or worst case scenario, this is it. This is where she dies, this very moment. But when we experience that freeing grace, what we see Moses do here is he bows down and he worships in understanding who God really is. So let's finish today's text. John 8, 9. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. We see Jesus flip the tables 
They give him a trick question, he gives them a trick answer. Actually, he gives them truth. He gives them revelation. He exposes them. And what that does to them is drives them away. And what I hope you see here, I told you posture is important. It says one by one they went away. Their internal sin is hidden. It's in there. It's just not good. It's, it's, it's simmering inside of them. What happens is because it's not exposed publicly, they have no choice but to walk away from Jesus. And the one whose sin is exposed, the inner verse 9 says, she was left standing before him. And this would be my encouragement to you, fam, today, is that um, whatever red-handed sin you have that's so bad and so wrong, and you know you don't need this or want this in your life, the best place is not to hide it and to try to walk away from Jesus and to try to pretend. The best place is to come and stand before Jesus and say, Lord, I'm guilty. I know it. I have nowhere else to go. And I can guarantee you, he is faithful to give you that grace through his truth And one of the most precious experiences you'll ever have is to be exposed. That we would be able to go back to the end of uh, Genesis 2 where it says they were naked and unashamed. That we would be able to stand before God. And not because, okay, it's all forgiven. Boys will be boys. Girls will be girls. No big deal. No. Because Jesus is enough. I can stand without shame. It's not because Josue is good enough because I've done enough good enough things to make up for my bad things in my past. No, it's because Christ's love for me has been so great. He has brought me today to this point where I can experience his grace. And out of that experience, I get to obey. I get to go and live a life that is honoring unto him. And every day I run back because every day I need this grace and I need to stand before him to receive it. Because every day I realize my hands are red. And there's only one place I can find cleansing. It's in the grace of Christ. And so let's end verse 10 and 11. Jesus gives us grace through redemption and relationship. This woman was not sorry because she was caught at this point, okay? I'm going to show you that. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Now, Obviously, everybody's left. I always find it interesting. Jesus asks, it would almost seem like rhetorical questions, right? Like, Jesus, come on. Obviously, nobody is here, right? But when he asks us a question or he asks something from us, I am convinced that it's because he wants to reveal something very particular and special about himself to us. When he asks you for something, it's not because he doesn't know the answer. It's because he wants to reveal himself to you. And if we would only answer him, He will be faithful to reveal himself to us. And so she says, no one, Lord. And I believe this is the pivotal moment for her. The scribes and the Pharisees, they call him what? How do they address Jesus? Teacher, right? We start off in John 1, Lamb of God, Son of God. We have all these great titles for Jesus of who he is. And over time, the scribes and Pharisees begin to get away from those terms. And now they just call him teacher. And she calls him Lord. Now, it'd be interesting if I talked to you the way Jesus talked to this lady, right? If I said to you ladies, woman, is the coffee ready? You know, you would probably say, pastor, you're about to be fired. So um, at that time, the word woman was used very differently than we use it today, right? I joke. Uh, Anyways, uh, at that time... (laughs) I get myself in trouble, clearly. At that time, uh, this was a term of endearment, okay? 
So we saw it at the wedding when Jesus' mother comes to him and says, hey, we're out of wine. And what does he say to her? He says, woman. Right? Now, I say it like that, but it was more of a term of endearment, like woman, what does it have to do with me? Like dear, what does it have to do with me? So here we have a woman who is at the point of death or worse, the worst case scenario, best case scenario, she's going to live as marked by the adulterous woman who would want to talk to her with gentleness and kindness and love. Oh, there is one that would, and his name is Jesus, and he is the savior of the world. And so he very gently and lovingly says, woman, where are they? Almost to reassure her, hey, they're not here. It's okay. I'm here. And he addresses her with respect and with dignity. And she recognizes who he is and doesn't say, teacher, no one's here. She says, Lord. And this is what Jesus is seeking from us. It's not just that we would come to him for salvation. Not that we would just come to him for forgiveness of sins. He is our Savior, but he is also our Lord every day. And I preached about this a few weeks ago. He's not our vending machine for just to come when we need some things. He's attentive. He will hear us out. But he is looking for something deeper. He's looking to redeem and restore and heal our brokenness. And I think this is the turning point for her where she says, No one, Lord. My God, nobody is here. And look at what he says to her at the end of 10, 11. Neither do I condemn you. Right? John 3, 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. This is the purpose of Jesus, to come and save the world. Romans 13, 1, there is now no condemnation for those that are in Christ, who live according to the spirit, not the flesh. And so here we see that Jesus says, hey, I don't condemn you. You're not going to die. I'm not going to kill you. I'm not sending you to hell. But the story doesn't end there, right? Jesus doesn't say, hey, I don't condemn you. Go and send some more. Like, go and just get at it. Go get after it. It's all good. He doesn't tell us the same thing either. He doesn't say, hey, you're not condemned. It's all good. Go and live however you want to live. No, he says, go and from now on, sin no more. This is almost an impossible task. How many of us here by show of hands have spent at least a week without sinning? (laughs) Yeah, I didn't think so. Um, None of us have, right? Probably not even this morning. There's some sin of us on our way here probably, right? As we're getting our kids ready or our spouse is not ready or running late, right? Um, I, I hit a pipe on my way out of my house and I busted it, a water pipe, you know? And I got frustrated. On my way here, I got frustrated, you know? I need to expose that sin and repent of it. So there it is before you, family. <laughs> and Jesus' grace is sufficient because coming here, being distracted and thinking through, Lord, what do you want us to hear today? He said, no, this is impossible. None of us can be sinless. There's only one is Jesus. So how does this happen? Well, it's quite simple. His invitation is unto redemption and relationship. That's the beautiful gift of grace. Not that we would be forgiven and cool, that's, we're good to go, but that we would be forgiven and the grace that we experience would be what drives us to come closer to him, to want more of him, to see more of our sin and to want to draw closer to him because we need more of his grace. And that is what's transforming us and driving us to be more like him every single day of our lives. 
It is not in our own doing. We cannot earn grace. We cannot earn forgiveness. Jesus freely gives it to us, but he loves us too much to leave us there. His invitation is far greater. His invitation is for relationship. It's for you and me to be in a deep-seated relationship with him that we would turn away from sin because we've tasted something that is so much greater than whatever sin you have ever tasted in the past. And so this is so much greater for her than her adulterous relationship or any other sin as she would see him and call him Lord. And so he says, hey, I'm going to commission you. Go, right? Our discipleship process is not simply come and see and get full. That's it. She says, go and sin no more. Go. Go be on mission. Go be in relationship with me. Go show and tell the people what I've done for you because there is a world outside of here, outside of you, that needs to hear this good news. And if you're here today and you haven't experienced this freedom, maybe you have been coming to church, but maybe you still have this brokenness in you. Maybe you've been cheated on. You've been hurt. You've been abused. You've been neglected. Neglected. You've been hurt in so many ways, and, you, and there's all this brokenness in you, and, and, and you have maybe the spirit of the Pharisees where, you, where you're just waiting for justice. Lord, when are you going to give it to them? When are you going to stick it to them? And you have these rocks in your hand, and you're ready just to go at it with whoever's coming at you. Let me tell you, being full of grace is dropping these stones. It's dropping them on the ground of condemnation. And maybe you're on the flip side, and you're full of guilt. And you've done things you shouldn't have done, and you said things you shouldn't have said, and you've been to places, and, and, and you've seen stuff. And let me just urge you today, stand before Jesus, and his grace is enough to heal your brokenness. I tell you that not out of commentary, not out of study. I tell you that out of personal experience. That after years and years of walking with Jesus, I have not seen him fail me with his grace. His love has been so good to me. Every time I've come and stood before him and said, Lord, my hands are red. I need your grace. And my challenge to you and my proposition to you and my plea to you today is that you would come and stand before Jesus. And I will assure you, you will find his grace. Let's pray. Lord, you have been so good to us in ways we don't even understand at times. You've sent your son to die for our sins. He suffered. He was beaten. He went to a cross that I deserved Because you loved me and you wanted to give me your grace so that I could be in relationship with you and go tell the world about how great you are and the great works and wonders you've done since the beginning of time. Father, I pray that as we let these words settle in our hearts, that as people are in this room, maybe on one end, as the Pharisees just ready to condemn somebody, or maybe like the woman at the point of death, caught with no place to go, that you would just allow your overwhelming grace to come over our lives. I pray that you would reveal that to us and that that alone would be what drives drives us and draws us to you. Father, let us recognize our red hands But let us also remember the truths of Scripture, that for these red hands, 
there is a great measure, a great gift, a great love, and it comes in the form of grace from our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let us be men and women that are transformed by these truths, that obey out of the reality that we have been given grace, not of obligation or law, but because we have been transformed in this deep and beautiful relationship with Jesus. And out of that grace, we get to give grace. We get to take the good news of the gospel to our neighbors, to our friends, to our networks, to the nations. So work deep in our hearts, heal our brokenness, draw us to you, and let us always be found at a place standing before Jesus Christ. In your name we pray. Amen.